Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is where we're at this morning. We've been in a series in Isaiah for almost a year, and Isaiah 40 really represents the headwaters of a comforting and hoping, hopeful section of Isaiah. So if you were to have a simple outline for Isaiah, it would be chapters 1 through 39 are basically judgment, and 40 through 66 are basically salvation. So we're at the headwaters of the good part. Finally. <laughs> And I'm going to read to you Isaiah 46 through 8, really, and want you to delve into the mindset that we should have as a Christian. So this is somewhat of a Christian world and life view passage, and it is more than that as well. And let us together look humbly at this section of scripture. So Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask for your guidance this morning, that you would help us in the meditations of our hearts, the thoughts that we think, to have some clarity with what you're telling, what you told your people then, what you're telling us now. So lead us and guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Cars really have some amazing technology in them nowadays, don't they? And several years ago, I rented a car that had this lane departure warning. It, it not only had that, it, it had some cameras and it would tell you when you're departing the lane. Some of us need that. And then it would correctively steer you back into the lane. So it doesn't take much to impress me. I should warn you about that. But of course, I had to try it out on I-10. Uh, coming back. And you know, we do kind of wonder how many people get in accidents trying these things out. But uh, there was no accident. But you know, it was fascinating to me to wander into the lane next, just start wondering, and then to feel the car steering wheel course correct and come back into the center of the lane. And my point in bringing that up is that we need that course correction, don't we? We are immersed in competing worldviews that compete with the scripture. We are immersed in, the in politics and everything that happens in our world that pushes us to think in non-Christian, non-biblical ways, and we don't even notice it. We are shaped and formed by what we read, by what we watch, by the pundits we agree with or disagree with. They shape and form us, and some of us don't even know this is happening. We need a course correction. And Isaiah 46 through 8 has this course correction that helps us to think specifically Christianly about our world, and God invites his people then, and he invites us now to think thoughts, really to have a mind 
for him in the midst of these competing worldviews. We would say one of our challenges as Christians is that we're trying to live godly lives in a godless world. Only you know what I know is that we're not really in a godless world. There are competing other gods out there. These idols. And idols are really not carved images. Don't think just that way. Don't limit yourself that way. But think idols as anything which takes away worship, dedication, and obedience to God. That, that's what an idol is. And so here we are trying to live godly lives in the midst of all these competing views, competing for our attention, competing for our dedication. How will we stay true to the mission that God has us on? In point of fact, Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. I have news for you. Christians are being conformed to this world. Shaped to have the values that our world has. Shaped to have the desires and the loves that our world has. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Isaiah 40 is the stick that goes into the spoke as we pedal along, absorbed in the world's thoughts and ways and worldview. Isaiah 40 puts an end to it. And we're going to see how this morning. And there's three points I want to make, uh, really how we can have a mind that's renewed after God's thoughts. And the first point here is that God is God. And that comes from the first part of verse 6. Now you may say, uh, that's kind of obvious, but you're going to see, no it isn't. God is God, and this is has to do with verse 6. And what we read here is, a voice says cry. Now we know the context, some of the context of Isaiah. We understand this is God speaking. God spoke directly to Isaiah. And he says, cry, which is akin to proclaim. In other words, what's happening here is God is giving the message in the second half of Isaiah. He's giving the message that Isaiah should proclaim to people. And so a voice says, a voice says cry, proclaim. And how does Isaiah respond? Look at verse 6. And I said, what shall I cry? God says, jump, we say how high. That shouldn't be a radical concept, but it is. It is. What God says goes. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. And so part of the challenge of really being free from the world's way of thinking, if you're not going to conform to the world's way of thinking you are going to have to recognize God for who he is. And I've told you a few times Isaiah has this incredibly high view of God. And it comes from, it can be tied to his vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And when he sees the vision of God, he is high and lifted up, seated on a throne. God is in charge. He is sovereign. He is holy. He knows and orders all the events of our life. God is God. And Isaiah responds appropriately. What God says, cry, 
is what Isaiah is going to do. In other words, this isn't optional for Isaiah. He's not called to improve on it. He's not called to contemporize it in a way that doesn't offend anyone. So cry means proclaim, and really we're on to what I like to call the first principle of all good theology. There is a God, and you are not him. And I'm not either. All of theology really springs from this headwaters of recognizing how powerful, holy, good, sovereign, in charge God is. And what Isaiah understands here is what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. Notice how I did that. The, the creator-creature distinction. I didn't say the creator or the uh, created creator distinction. God is above us. And the creator-creature distinction highlights the fact that God is the one who has made us, redeemed us, takes care of us, saves us, and he is the one to whom we owe all our allegiance as we give him glory in our life in everything we think, do, and say. And so we obey God because he is our creator. He is above us. And this creator creature distinction, it's something seen a couple places in Isaiah, and I'll show you real quick. Isaiah 45, just skip forward a little bit there in your Bibles to Isaiah 45, 9, and, and you can look at this imagery of the fact that God is a creator and we're going to acknowledge his greatness. Look at Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. And there's a little bit of absurdity in here. A little uh, Middle Eastern humor here in Isaiah 45, 9 that says the, the potter is making the pot and the pot has nothing to say about how the pot is formed or made. That it would be absolutely absurd for someone to be shaping, you know, you can kind of imagine a potter's wheel shaping a, a, a piece of clay and the pot kind of gets made and says, well, I need a couple handles here. That would be absurd, would it not? But that is what we do. That is what we do in life when we question who God is, how he formed us, how he made us. And so there's this submission that's underlying this principle that the creature acknowledges the greatness of the creator and his right to do what he wants. Now, the reason we have such a problem with this is we are independent. Mm, come and take it. Independent, right? And we have a streak of autonomy in us. And you know what? The Bible comes right up against that. And this idea of the creator-creature distinction smashes that autonomy and that independence. Come and take it. God says, okay, yeah, I'll take you. And I'll pay the price of my own son, my only son. 
for you. And so this principle of God is God, the creature-creator distinction is seen here. Isaiah 45, 9. One other place, Isaiah 64, 8, because it's sort of a sub-theme of Isaiah to have this extremely high view of God and recognize him for who he is. All Isaiah is doing is laying before us a biblical theology to see that God is God and not watered down as we typically do in our culture. In our culture, we think much of ourselves and we think little of God at the same time in order to try to bridge this distance. And uh, second place, you see this imagery used, Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, and this is sort of a confession, a confession verse. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And then the Apostle Paul would later pick up on this imagery in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, in explaining God's right, his sovereign right to elect and to order things his way, uh, Paul brings it up in Romans chapter 9, verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So that is a theme in scripture, this creator-creature distinction that God has permission to do what he wants, how he wants to. And it is us to recognize his greatness, us to recognize that he has a right to do this because he is that powerful. And I mentioned before, the only way to reconcile the creator-creature distinction, it's not to lift ourselves up and then sort of bring God down. That's not going to do it. Thinking great thoughts about ourselves, thinking little of God, that, that's not going to work. This is an infinite gulf between the creator and the creature. If you want to have a biblical theology, you've got to have this distance. And the only way it's bridged is through the gospel, of course. The only way we can be reconciled to our creator is through Jesus Christ giving our life over. You know, your independence, my independence, mm, come and take it. Not as important as God's glory and what he has called us to and how he has saved us from our sins. Jesus paid the penalty that we owed to a holy creator God. He paid that penalty for us at the cross. And when we have faith in him, we become... A Christian, And so that's the first principle. You want to think, you want to prevent yourself from being colonized by the world's way of thinking. You have this high view of God. God is God. He's the creator. I'm the creature. He's the potter, not me. I don't have a right to do that. He is the potter. We are the clay. So that's the first principle you got to have. Second we're, gonna, we're talking about thinking biblically here, having a, a Christian world in life view, biblical world in life view, understanding the narrative of how the Bible's story shapes and forms us so that we can avoid being colonized by the secular influences of our world and worldly way of thinking. Second point here, the grass fades. The grass fades. So 
here in the second half of verse 6, we're immediately into the metaphorical. We're told here, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is the flower of the field. Okay, so what happens? Verse 7, what happens to the grass? The grass withers. What happens to the flower? All its beauty, the flower fades. When does that happen? Look at verse 7, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. So this is another statement of God's sovereignty because it points us back to Genesis chapter 2-7. What did God do with Adam? He formed him out of the ground. Then what happened? He blew the breath of life. Genesis 2-7 into his nostrils. So God is the author of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's sovereignly in charge of life. And this is a communication of our finiteness. This is a communication that if all flesh is like grass, I'm like the grass at the edge of your lawn where the sprinkler doesn't reach. How's that looking right now? And some of us are crunchier than others. All of us have what we could say is an expiration date. Some of us are nice and green. Some of us have that beautiful Texas wilty color, straw color. But this is a communication that if we're going to think biblically, we've got to have this perspective that all of us have an expiration date, that life is temporary, that beauty fades. Remember, we had a great spring, great wildflowers all up and down I-10. Excuse me, where are those right now? They disappear, don't they? And just like that, you know, if you've been around the block, you know life can change like that. And you can be affected by some debilitating health situation we are all finite. We are all temporary. And what this uh, verse does for us is it says if we're going to have a biblical world in life view, if we are going to think God thoughts, God's thoughts after him, then we must embrace this finiteness, our temporary, the temporary nature of life. But really what it is is it's embracing eternity through the lens of, of how we are not going to live in this world forever. In point of fact, our life will end. Our life will end. And we need to hear that in a world which constantly idolizes youth, and we need to hear that in a world that only sees value in life continuing and has no category for our earthly life coming to a good, fulfilling, God-glorifying end. I know this is a heavy subject, but this is what we need to introduce that we would think rightly about eternity and about our life now. So the grass withers, the flowers fade. This happens. It happens when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And this is a communication I mentioned of God's sovereignty. He's the one in charge. He's the author of life. 
We see that in Psalm 139. And I'll just read Psalm 139. What a beautiful psalm. But Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. If you can follow that verse, Psalm 139.16, it says that God saw my unformed substance and then wrote, ordained, every day for me and for you, when as yet there was none of them. And of course, what happens there? Our Texas autonomy kicks in. Oh, oh, well, am I just a robot then? This is a communication that God knows everything. He knows the end before the beginning. And you know what? He doesn't have to ask you whether you like it or not. Because he is God. And so, again, this invites us into that having this high view of God and having a view, both a proper view of the duration of our earthly life and uh, God's eternality and our soul and future in heaven if we have embraced Christ. Now, how do you relate to expiration dates? You know, pretty much every food that's perishable has an expiration date on it. And uh, I, I got to warn you a little bit here. I, I see expiration dates as suggestions. Mm -hmm. So in our house, when the milk is approaching the expiration date, I'm going to go ahead and let it hit that expiration date. And then five to seven days after, we'll kind of determine how things are going. That's how I roll. I'm the only one in my family like that. <laughs> Don't try this at home. But my point is, I see the expiration date more as a suggestion. And for you, you might be more on the other end of the spectrum. And boy, hey, that milk's about three days from expiration. I'm getting rid of it. You might have that sort of approach to the expiration date. But whatever your approach is, I want to tell you that the What's different about food expiration dates or medicine, right? Medicine. Oh, it's good for a year after. Who made that up? It's, it's good for at least a year after. Well, then why are they putting that expiration date on it? Go figure. Maybe it helps their bottom line, right? But, of course, how you relate to expiration dates has to do with how you were raised, your values, your finances. And so... The thing is, that's well and good, but don't apply that to your life's expiration date. The Bible comes across here telling us that the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. It puts us into that category saying you don't have an option with regard to your earthly expiration date. You need to think carefully about that. Because we need to make the most of our life now, absolutely. We think we'll live forever. And what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, we will exist forever, but we won't be in this earthly life forever. 
And Psalm 90 is a wonderful prayer of Moses. I love Psalm 90. That sort of sets us right here. In Psalm 90, verse 10, here's what we read about our earthly expiration date. The years of our life are how many? How many? Seventy. Seventy. Or even by reason of strength, eighty. So what's that tell us about our expectations in this earthly life? See, this is about setting your expectations to the biblical command here. If you are 80 or over, you are in some bonus years. You're in the bonus round. And embrace that in a wonderfully gracious way. Yes, you're going to break down. I mean... Psalm 90.10 is a reminder that we're, we're, we're not young anymore. 70 years, 80 if you have the strength, embrace each day as a gift. If you are over 80, embrace each day as a wonderful gift. And then really adjust your expectations and understand that 70 is good. 70 is good. And then at the end of Psalm 90. In verse 17, we read this. Let the favor of our Lord be upon us establish. Oh, sorry, that wasn't the verse I wanted. Uh, it's Psalm 90, 12, sorry. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering your days there, and this is what's so important about aging graciously and gratefully Numbering your days there, teach us to number our days, means to count each day with importance and to receive it as a gift from a sovereign God. And our life, our body is going to break down as a result of the fall and the effects of sin in the world. Yes, we're going to break down. So adjust expectations accordingly and live into that rather than be embarrassed about it. You know, why are we so embarrassed? You know, why am I so embarrassed my 20-year-old can work circles around me? Embrace the limitation. And move forward in the wisdom and thankfulness that God has given us. The longer you've been a Christian, the longer you've been a Christian, the longer you've been around the things of the gospel and God's word, this should have a tenderizing effect on your heart. There should be no such thing as a cranky old Christian. No such thing. Why? Because you've been marinating in the wonder of God's love for you. Undeserved love. Unmerited favor that we have with God. Just like you tenderize a piece of meat by marinating it overnight. You've, you've marinated longer than me, maybe. So what's your problem? Why are you cranky? Why are you mad? You see how that can convict us. If you've been around the gospel longer, it should soften your heart, make you more tender and merciful to those around you. So the grass fades, the grass withers, the flowers fade. But here's the hope. Into that reality, there's a third component of the worldview we ought to have. If we're going to prevent ourselves from being colonized by the world's way of thinking, We've got to know God is God. We're not going to be here forever. And here's the hope. Verse 8. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You could almost read verse 8 this way. It's in contrast to verse 7. You could read it this way, verse 8, but the, even though the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. It's an admission that in this temporary life that we have with an expiration date, there is something you can latch on to that is eternal, namely the word of God. The word of God will stand forever. Forever. That in the temporary nature of life and as we sort of age and maybe some of us do that more graciously than others, we have this hope, the word of our God, the promises of God and what he has said to us and how he has communicated his love to us in his word will stand forever, forever. In this temporary unknown life where we don't know what we're going to face from day to day, you can tie yourself to the promises of God in Scripture. The word of our God will stand forever. The beauty will fade, but this truth of his word endures. It is dependable, trustworthy, true, and God gives us that assurance and that hope will stand forever. The inspired and errant word of God forever, forever. There's several ways to apply the fact that God's word endures forever. And the first is if, and it's not really applicable to you because you're here this morning, but I would tell every Christian who is in a church that does not uphold that God's word is eternal, inspired, and errant, and true in all its parts as it communicates to us the plan of God. Any Christian in a church that is like that should get out. It's high time you got out because it doesn't support being able to think Christianly. Now, you know, we have to still be humble as we kindly communicate maybe to our friends who are still in a liberal church or a church that has walked away or changed the doctrine of the Bible in order to align with modern sensibilities. We need to be compassionate and communicative to them. Come out of there. Why are you still there? You know, as challenging as it sounds, it's not a church. If God's word isn't proclaimed, if the standard isn't upheld, it has ceased to become Christ's church. And their soul is at peril of being colonized with the world's way of thinking in regard to especially our, the social issues that are being debated Today, So the first way you apply this, if God's word will last forever, get out of a place that doesn't uphold it as that. And I know there's a cost to that. And over the years in ministry here at Trinity, I have seen lifelong members of churches leave and God reward that. 
as they form new relationships and walk with him. So that's the first way to apply. God's word endures, so of course there's no need to change it. There's no need to take God's word and adjust it to the sensibilities of society. Uh, that's not what we do here. That's not what the Christian church does. Second way to apply this is to simply put a priority on God's word in your own life. What place does God's word have in your life? And what kind of priority is on God's word in your life? We will, we will sit and without even thinking, watch hours of TV, right? Hours of TV or movies or whatever. You know, I'm not saying that's bad, you know, but I'm saying what place does this have in your, in your life? What are you taking in? Because what you take in shapes and forms you. And you might not even be aware of the way that those ideas shape and form you. And so what should be shaping and forming you is God's enduring word, the truth. So place priority on God's word in your life. Read God's word. Uh, have, make sure that the word of God places, has a place of priority in your life. And then another way we can apply this is to study God's word, yes, but to make sure that we understand the difference between God's word and my preference. God's word and my preference are two different different things. Sometimes there's subtle ways that we get so excited about what we prefer that we make that have the force of God's word. C.S. Lewis put it this way in God in the Dock, his book. We need to take scrupulous care to preserve the Christian message as something distinct from one's own ideas. So we need to be able to differentiate between a good idea and the truth of God's word. Or my preference and what God has said. Those are two different things. So I hope I've shown you today. I hope I have in many ways helped you to course correct. Just like in that car we got pulled back into the center of the lane. Course corrected. How do you course correct? God is God, this high view of God in your world and life view and your outlook and perspective on life to have God as God, this high view of him. And then to understand something of your own finiteness that indeed the grass withers, the flower fades, but then to have hope. God's word endures forever. The biblical record that we have dedicated our life to studying and following, it's not going anywhere. God's word endures. Let's pray together. God, how we thank you that indeed you have given us guidance and help with your enduring word, that you protect it and you strengthen us that we could uphold it and commend it and proclaim it to others. So give us tender hearts to hear what you have for us today that we might rightly reflect what it means to be a people of the book, your book, the Bible. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.